This morning is going to be from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 571. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. Starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning to hear your word and to learn more about who you are, and we we think about and learn about your holiness, help us to behold you and to stand in awe of you. And as we look at how holy you are and realize how unholy we are, bring conviction through the Spirit and allow us the power to change and the power to become more like you. I pray that as Pastor Toby comes and preaches your word, give him authority and conviction to preach us and to lead us. We pray all these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the constant need of mankind to know who God is. We don't always think it is the constant need of mankind to know who God is. But we who know him know it is the constant need of mankind to know who God is. It is common if you were to have conversations with any number of people in your neighborhood or in your workplace for people to come up with their best idea of who God is. To say, well, I kind of feel like God's like this. I feel like God is more like that. And yet, we know, don't we, that we need not philosophize, we need not make conjecture, we need not make guesses as to who this God is. Because very often when this happens in our conversations, and maybe it happens in you sometimes, well, I kind of like to think of God more this way than that. 
I have a friend, I was in, I was in youth ministry as an intern, and she was in the youth group, and to see some of her thoughts on God now, there are a billion miles from where she was as a teenager, because she started thinking, I kind of like to think of God this way, and let's stretch our minds a little, let's, let's stretch, let's go beyond what we actually see in the Bible, and let's start to think about this God more deeply. Dear friend, not only are those dangerous waters, there is no deeper water than the scripture, but once you try to go into deeper water, you will ultimately drown. You will drown in a sea of lies, and you'll never get out of it. It is the constant need of mankind to know who God is. And because we don't need to conjecture, we don't need to guess as to the character of God, because he has told us who he is in the scripture. The scripture, the, 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 the protagonist of the Bible is not me and you. It's not even all the wonderful people, the flawed, wonderful people you come along. The main character of the Bible is God himself. It is an autobiography, if you will, of who he is and what he is doing in his creation. And so it's necessary from time to time, isn't it, just to get back and just resettle ourselves and think, who is God? And that's what we'll be doing over these next eight weeks. We'll be looking not at every attribute. We could not exhaust it. We'll be thinking about God for all eternity. We're not going to squeeze it into eight weeks. But we're going to think about things which ought to stir awe in our soul, which ought to cause us to sing the kinds of things that we've been singing this morning. And this morning we begin with this foundational truth. Our God is holy. Now, I wonder what you think of when you hear the word holy, when you think of how the Bible uses the word holy. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is moral purity, and that's not a bad thing. Certainly, God is absolutely morally pure. He is holy in that sense. So 1 John 1.5 tells us, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Deuteronomy 32 says, the rock, his, per, his work is perfect. His, all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, without iniquity, just and upright is he. So that is true, but the concept of holiness is bigger than just moral purity. The concept of holiness is the idea of being separate, of being consecrated, of being sacred, of being set apart, of being totally other than. So this is why God can say in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right deduction, because I am higher than you. I am beyond you. And that's a wonderful thing. Do you really want to walk around trusting in a God who's exactly like you? Do you know you? If we are going to have any reliable help, it must be from someone other than someone like me. 
and our God is holy. Now, in the Bible, many things are called holy. The Sabbath is called holy. Ground is called holy, so Moses must remove his shoes. Israel is to be a holy nation. The innermost parts of the tabernacle are the holy place, and then the most holy place, the holy of holies. The high priest wore holy garments, and so on. But these other things are holy because they are made holy. Only God is holy in and of himself. He is intrinsically holy. He is unique. He is distinct from his creation. He transcends it. He is separate from it. He is superior to it. He is other than. He is like nothing that we have ever known or ever seen or could ever imagine. He's beyond our imagination. He's beyond our comprehension. He's more glorious than any thought of him we might muster up. He is higher than we can climb. He is deeper than we can dive. He is farther than we can reach. He is broader than we can get our arms around. He is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is holiness cubed. He is holiness to the highest degree. And this vision of the super superlative holiness of God overtakes Isaiah in this text. Because he wasn't just talking about the fact that God's holy. He didn't just hear somebody say God's holy. He saw it. And it overtook him. God's otherness, God's separateness, God's magnificent, the resplendent beauty and glory and perfection of God overwhelms the prophet. And as it does, we see four characteristics of it. First, it is a revealed holiness. It is a revealed holiness. The holiness of God is not plainly visible to the naked eye. It's not just on the surface. It can't be seen by powers of observation and deduction and investigation. It must be revealed. I mean, Isaiah had been to the temple who knows how many times, right? He's a good Jew. He goes to the temple, worshiping, making sacrifices, bringing gifts, doing everything that a good Israelite does. I mean, in today's language, he's in church every Sunday. He's in Sunday school. That's better than some of us. He's in Sunday school. Then he's in worship services. He dares to come back on Sunday night for the prayer meeting, which is tonight, by the way. He's in growth groups. He's faithful in all the activity of the church. Imagine him walking to the temple that morning with his wife. They're talking about the events of the day. Maybe they're talking about one day they'll have children. Whatever it is, they're talking about the events of the day, the fact that the whole nation is in mourning because King Uzziah has died. Isaiah said, yes, Uzziah was a good king. He was a very good king. But we don't need just a good king. Pride got him in the end. We need a king that's steady. We need a king that lasts. We need a king that's better than Uzziah. Oh, how Judah needs a great king. Remind me, sweetie, we'll pray for that at dinner tonight. And then they get to the temple and they walk through the doors and he is struck to the core 
by what he sees. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, it hadn't been vision Sabbath day at the temple. They hadn't planned it. The rabbis and the priests hadn't gotten together and said, you know what these people really need? We need a revival. That's what we need. And we're going to plan for the Lord to make himself known. That's not what happened. He was just going to the temple. He didn't plan it. Nobody made it happen. It was just going to be another normal trip to the temple. Lots of people who would be showing up there would be saying the same kinds of things that we read in Amos 8. When will the Sabbath be over so that we can get back to normal life? And yet in the wake of the king's death, the true king, the king of kings, the king like no other, the holy king makes himself known. He reveals himself. Friends, the holiness of God the otherness, the separateness, the distinction, the uniqueness, the absolute splendor of God is a revealed holiness. Now we all know what a seeker is. We label seekers. They're seeking truth. They're seeking God. But we must be committed to knowing that no one sees God unless he reveals himself. You can turn over every intellectual rock that you want to and you will not find God. You can answer every question about religion and about justice and about the presence of evil in the world and you can do it all and you won't find God at the end of that series of questions. You can visit every church and talk to every person and you can just have a lot of Bible studies. You can have a lot of Bible studies without seeing God. This is why the Apostle Paul describes our state before Christ as that of blindness. And he says that when we are saved, when we become Christians, God opens our eyes so that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why you pray for your lost friends, isn't it? You're not praying they get smarter. You're praying they can see better. Because they can't see right now. But lest we think this is just about the unbelievers, even, as, even we as Christians, we are constantly dependent on God to help us to see him. To see him. That's, we can read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we can sing, holy is the Lamb, who, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we can sing, God in three persons, blessed trinity. And we can sing, come praise and glorify our God. And we can look at the Bible and we read this declaration of the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and see nothing. Nothing. 
We just see sentences to diagram. We just see ideas to tease out. These words aren't given to us that we might simply diagram them or tease ideas out. These sentences are given to us that we might see God. But even we as believers, our vision gets fuzzy. The smog of the world clouds our minds. The scales of our own sinfulness begin to cover. This is why Paul prays for Christians that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. We have to have a continual renewal of our vision. Of actually seeing God plainly as he is and not as we think he is or as we th- or even worse as we think he should be. I mean, even now, as we're talking about this, you may be counting on my skills of communication, my skills of persuasion to make you see this clearly, to make you see the holy God, to see the holiness of God. And while I am communicating, and I feel like I'm working with every bit of strength that God would give me, wanting to make you see, like Paul said, his mission was to open blind eyes, I would make you see, but I can't. It's a bit like being at the Grand Canyon. And one is standing on the edge and the guide is saying, notice all the colors of the rock. Notice, look, look at how the river cuts right through it. You should be here when the sun rises and when the sun sets. Because it's wonderful. It's glorious. You see it at a total different perspective if you hike down to the bottom. If we could hike down, you'd see glorious things. You'd be in wonder. You'd be in awe. And all the time the one standing there is blind. That's what it's like. You can hear all of these things. You can do your best with your imagination, but the one who has never seen cannot with his or her imagination truly contemplate what's being described at the Grand Canyon. Except that it's something, and if I could see it, I'd probably be overwhelmed by it. But dear friends, that's what it's like when we come to the Scriptures. We examine the Christian faith. We talk. We do Bible studies. We do all these things without the help of God. It's incomplete, it's insufficient, because the holiness of God is a revealed holiness. He is a revealed being. We would never have fully found him if he didn't tell us. We would have just like seen pale reflect, you know, reflections of his glory in creation, and we see it in a reflection in our conscience, but we never get the fullness It's a revealed holiness. Have you seen God? Have you seen him in that way? Have you seen him where who he is overwhelms your soul? 
We have such a tendency to domesticate God. He is overwhelming. He is revealed. You are not smart enough to find him. And none of your Christian friends can answer enough of your questions so that you will find him. But when you see him, nothing else stays the same. That takes us to our second point. It is a revealing holiness. It's not just a revealed holiness. When this holy God reveals himself, he reveals us. He exposes us. Look into what happens to Isaiah. The foundations of the threshold are shaking. The temple is filled with smoke. But the foundations aren't the only thing shaking in the temple. Isaiah is shaking. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see this? He's not just having a moment of conviction. It's the fact that he can see who God is. That he sees himself. This is exactly how, by the way, Calvin begins his institutes. If you are going to ever have a right view of yourself, you must begin by having a right view of God. But it doesn't just happen here, does it? Do you remember in the New Testament, the Gospels, as Jesus is calling his disciples? This is the very same things that happen, that thing that happens to Peter, isn't it? Peter's been out fishing all night. He hadn't caught a thing. He comes in. Jesus meets him and says, I'm getting in the boat. Let's go back out. Why don't we try some deep water, Peter? Why don't we try some deep water? Well, I mean, it hasn't been good, uh, sir. Uh, it hasn't been good all night. So but if you, I'll show you. We'll throw out the nets and I'll show you what's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. He throws out the nets. And such a catch begins to come in that the nets begin to break. And Peter is calling quickly for the other boat to come over because there's so many fish. We're going to have to have two boats to get it in. And they begin to load. And they load these boats down with fish to such a point that the Bible tells us that both boats start sinking. And here is Peter's reaction to the one who simply said, Put your net here. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. He caught a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Now why do these men respond this way? Why does such a vision cause such an exposure? Well, because in essence the, the human heart is desperately wicked and dark and depraved and the radiant holiness of God exposes that. Not to God. God doesn't need to reveal himself to us so he can see us better. He knows us through and through. God graciously and clearly reveals himself to us, gives us a glimpse of his holiness, his otherness, his separateness, his distinctness, his absolute moral purity, so that we see our sin and our failings and our inadequacy. Adequacies. You see, we are made in the image of God. And when God makes clear what the image of God should look like, holy, 
We see very clearly what we should be, but we are not. I mean, I may think I am quite a basketball player with quite a jump shot. And if you ask me, that's exactly what I would tell you until Steph Curry shows up. And then all of a sudden, meager is about the best word that you can use to describe my jump shot. A violinist may believe that she is quite good at that instrument until the virtuoso violinist shows up and shows the chasm between their skill. One may think he's quite smart until he matches wits with the genius. Or tries to go on Jeopardy these days, apparently. Likewise, we may see ourselves as good people, as righteous, as even holy, until we catch a glimpse of God. And then the red-hot heat and the bright light of his holiness strips away the veneer of religion and good works that we've been counting on, and we're exposed. And like Adam in the garden, we want to hide. And like Adam in the garden, we can't. And Isaiah couldn't. It's interesting, if you read the chapter just before this, uh, we have the record of Isaiah being used to pronounce condemnation, which is what the word woe means, uh, to pronounce condemnation on a whole host of people. Woe to those who devote their lives to the pursuit of wealth and land, to those who make every day a party and are proud of it, those who dive headfirst into sin without giving it a second thought, those who call evil good and good evil, those who are wise in their own eyes and don't care what anyone else thinks. In other words, he was looking through the window at the world, and he said, Whoa, 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 whoa. And then in chapter 6, the window becomes a mirror. And he says, Woe is me. In words that Jesus would later use, he saw the log in his own eye. He couldn't see anything else. Woe is me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. When was the last time your sin was the only thing you thought about? When was the last time the only sin you noticed happened to be yours? When was the last time you walked out of a conflict and instead of thinking about everything that everybody else should have done differently, all you can think is, woe is me. When was the last time you interacted with your spouse and you were in conflict and you went away not thinking, I need a better, I need an upgrade in spouse here. Like, can we download some new software here so that they're a little better? The hardware's fine, not going to do that, just like software update. That's what I need. When was the last time you walked out and instead of thinking they needed a software update, you think, I need a software update. I need that virus software to run all through me and turn over every rock. When was the last time you recognized you were rude on 465? I 
Dear friends, if we are only seeing the sin in other people, the question has to be asked, are we actually regularly encountering God? His holiness is a revealing holiness. Do you know, if you ask kind of run-of-the-mill Christians, they're going to church on a Sunday, and you say, wouldn't you love for God to show up today? And people say, yeah, it's going to be great if God showed up today. It's going to be great. It's going to be one. They're thinking thrill. They're thinking exhilaration. They're thinking, you know, goosebumps of emotion and all that kind of thing. Well, Isaiah went to church, and God shows up, and he gets laid out. What if our prayers for God to show up among us and make himself known to us actually resulted in that? You still going to pray for it? Because you cannot encounter this holy God without seeing yourself absolutely differently. His beauty reveals our ugliness. Boy, if our services could just have more of this and more of that and more of this and more of that. Dear friends, if, if I could come to this service and be more confessing of my sin... You know, the great revivals in history don't just start with prayer. One of the first evidences that God has actually stirred revival is the confession and repentance of his people in his churches. It's not that they filled up, it's that they fell down. They didn't walk out with a smile on their face, they walked out with tear stains on their face. When was the last time we wept over our sin? What we don't need in the American church is the teaching, yay for me. This is the only message that seems to be promoted and celebrated in our current culture. Yay for me. And why not, right? Every itching ear loves to hear, yay for me. And certainly, friends, there are great and glorious and wonderful and awe-inspiring and joy-filling and smile-making benefits and blessings of the gospel. But I have this suspicion that what the church in America and the church in Indianapolis and the church that gathers here Sunday by Sunday needs is less time on the yay for me, and we need to begin thinking about woe is me. I'm not talking about, look, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of rejoicing. Because it's actually through the mourning that we get to better rejoicing. Because without woe is me, yay for me is just a pep rally every Sunday. Can I tell you that? It's just a pep rally. And I'm not interested in being in a pep rally. I'm not good at it. I can't do it. I want to see God, which will absolutely slay me every time I catch a glimpse. Because the very sin that would keep me from sweet fellowship with him is the thing he will reveal in my soul.
he will slay me in order to sanctify me. He will tear me down in order to build me up. There will be no real forward progress in our lives as individuals or in our congregation unless we are willing to say, woe is me with regularity. We don't need a special season of confession. We don't need a special set of services. We need to be keen enough to have our nose tuned to the inner cesspool of our own sin and say, woe is me. God's holiness is a revealing holiness. Third, it's a reconciling holiness. Verses 6 and 7. The one of, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. According to Leviticus 6, the fire on the altar was to never go out. It was to constantly be burning. It was a visible reminder of the fiery wrath of God which must be satisfied by sacrifice. It's also, by the way, just sitting here on the other side of the cross, it's also a tremendous reminder that the fires of hell, the place of judgment, where the wrath of God will be experienced for eternity, that that is a reality that does not go away. So Jesus says in Mark 9, it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The fires of hell will never, 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 never be quenched. And that's why this fire is here. And while the wrath of God burned then, it still burns today. And the Lord, having heard Isaiah's confession shows him compassion. God discharges one of his seraphim to show mercy, to remove Isaiah's guilt, to forgive Isaiah's sin. This grace, this mercy, this forgiveness is beyond anything that we could imagine for an unclean man like Isaiah and unclean people like us to be cleansed by God himself. You see, in every other religion, it would be our responsibility to do something to appease the God that we're worshiping. We do it. We've got to figure it out, and we've got to do it. But this God is distinct from all other gods. This one true God, this holy God, provides for our atonement. He appeases his own wrath. Even, look, he provided the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He provided the instructions. He created the sheep. He created the lambs that are going to be slaughtered. He provides, he makes provision for the poor who can't afford the more valuable uh, offerings. And all of that is only a pointer to the final sacrifice. Because God provides his own son. His sinless son, the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, so that in the fullness of time, the Father sends the Son on a mission. The Father identifies the Son publicly at his baptism. The Father sends the Spirit to rest on him and to anoint him. 
And then it was the Father's will to lay all our sin on him and then to lay him on the cross and crush him and engulf him in the fiery flames of his own wrath, consuming him, killing him, so that he might reconcile us. Have mercy on us. Touch our lips. Cleanse our consciences. Forgive our sin. Remove our guilt. Make us his own. And the road to that mercy, as you saw here, led right through the recognition of that sin. You will not be forgiven for the, receive mercy for, 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 the, for the sin you refuse to confess. He who confesses and forsakes his sin receives mercy. You must pray as the tax collector did in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you prayed like that? Have you cried out for God's mercy? Do you know that God crushed and consumed his dear son for you? Are you forgiven? Dear friend, turn to him today in faith. The holy God who reconciles Isaiah to himself by his grace can reconcile you to himself. Plead for his mercy. Trust in Jesus Christ. Don't let another Sunday go by of hearing without understanding. Call on God to open your eyes. His holiness is a revealed holiness, it's a revealing holiness, it's a reconciling holiness. And it's a reorienting holiness. We don't know where Isaiah's life was headed before he came to the temple that day. But we know where it goes afterward. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. In other words, Isaiah's life is not his own. He knows it's been bought with a price. The reconciling love of God now compels him. Encountering the holiness of God has reoriented his entire life. It's meaning. It's purpose. So he will serve. He will go. He will do whatever the Lord wants. Now, if we were to read on, and we won't, you would see that God's mission statement for Isaiah's ministry is not grand or glorious or triumphant. People will hear God's word, but they won't get it. Isaiah will show them God's way, but they won't see it. Rather than dynamic results, he's going to encounter dull hearts. And God's judgment is going to come. The northern kingdom of Israel is going to fall to Assyria, and Judah will have some severe loss there, and then ultimately be taken by the Babylonians. But, friends, Isaiah does not volunteer because God guarantees success. 
or because God guarantees he'll be well-loved as he goes and preaches. Isaiah answers the call because this holy God has revealed himself and reconciled Isaiah to himself. And that's all he needs. How can Isaiah do anything but give himself fully to this holy God for his holy purposes? Dear friend, if you're a Christian, if this is true of you, that you have seen God in this way and he has reconciled you to himself, you have seen his glory, his goodness, you've seen your sin, you've turned from it, you've trusted in the atoning work of Christ, how can you do anything but the same? If that's true of you, then you're part of what the Scripture calls his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. We are to be holy because he is holy. He's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And as such, yes, we are strangers and aliens in this world, but also we are ambassadors to this world. Ambassadors of the kingdom of light, of the holy king of light himself, Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel, whatever the response and whatever the results. How can you do anything but serve him? How could any of us come in here and think, can we just get on with it? I've got things to do the rest of this afternoon. When we begin to think this way, we have lost sight of the God we've come to worship. Because after all, and this is the point, seeing God's holiness changes everything. Seeing God's holiness changes everything, and it changes us from observers of religion to confessors of sin, from those who are condemned in sin to those who are freed from sin, from those who are aimless and living for ourselves to those who live for the greatest being in the universe, God himself, to one who is beyond us and yet is for us, to the one who is above us and yet condescends to be with us, to one who's beyond our comprehension and yet gives us understanding through his word and his spirit, the one whose flames of, right, of wrath rightly burned against us and yet mercifully consumed his son in our place, the distinct one, the holy one, the unique one, the separate one, the transcendent God, the holy God, our God. Our God is holy. And seeing that changes everything. Merciful and mild. 
but in three persons, blessed Trinity. Father, we bow before you, our holy God. And we plead for you to enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you and see ourselves and see our Savior. We pray that you would free us from the rut of coming and going to a place where we ought to encounter you. As you have revealed our hearts, give us grace to repent Give us grace to confess. Give us grace to say, Woe is me. We are thankful that you are holy God have reconciled us through the blood of your Son. And for those who do not know that reconciliation this morning, I pray truly that you will open their eyes that they might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the lights will go on that they will comprehend what they could not before, that you will give your spirit to be their teacher, to draw them to yourself, that they might repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. You alone are worthy. You alone are glorious. You are majestic. You are transcendent, separate, superior, high, and lifted up. And we thank you that in your goodness you have said to us that you are our God and we are your people. Help us to live as such this day and in the days to come. And we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the thrice holy God and the fellowship of the Spirit will be with us all in these moments, in this day, and in the days to come and forever. 
Amen.